Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. Everybody who's watching this is staggered by the pace at which the Afghan state on which so much money and time and indeed blood um, had been invested, people are staggered by the the pace at which it, it collapsed. The United States has spent nearly two decades and $2 trillion in Afghanistan. The country is again in the hands of the Taliban. America being the latest in a string of foreign players to be expelled from the failed state. Was this inevitable? Is there any hope for the regime in Kabul to espouse a more enlightened self-interest? Stay with us. This episode is made possible by the support of Salomon & Ludwin, a boutique wealth management firm dedicated to helping families make smart financial decisions. You worked hard and sacrificed to create and build wealth. They treat advice given to you with the respect your journey deserves. For over 30 years, Salman and Ludwin has earned a reputation of trust and confidence, recognized by Barron's as a Hall of Fame advisor. More at SalomonLudwin.com. Full Disclosure Podcast to NPR One, Spotify, and Apple at linkfulldradio.com. Please subscribe, rate us, and recommend the show to others, and follow on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at Full D Radio. Joining me is James Astill, Washington Bureau Chief and Lexington Columnist at The Economist. Uh, James was international security editor when he joined the magazine back in 2004. He's filed dispatches from Afghanistan, Pakistan, and many African countries, and he is monitoring this situation in Afghanistan closely. The cover says Biden's debacle, what it means for Afghanistan and America. How are you, sir? I'm well, Robin. Yeah, good to speak to you. I have to ask you with the benefit of, I say, 20 years of, of hindsight now and I remember what was going through my head that day in Manhattan on September 11th. Whoever was responsible for this was going to be vanquished. There was just no way. An attack unprecedented since the likes of Pearl Harbor. And you remember what happened to Japan and the terms of the surrender. And here we are 20 years later, and the Taliban was uh, giving succor and comfort and hosting al-Qaeda, which attacked the World Trade Center of the Pentagon, is indeed resurgent. Yeah, it could look, I suppose, as if America has spent an awful lot of blood and treasure not to move very far forward. I think that that is deceptive. I think that, you know, part of the problem with the American mission in Afghanistan was a failure from the beginning and for many years thereafter to distinguish properly, sufficiently between al-Qaeda and the Taliban, between the international terrorists and the tribally-based Islamist militia that had taken power in Kabul. Uh, So, you know, with a proper distinction in mind, it's clear that al-Qaeda has been largely broken up, certainly the al-Qaeda of bin Laden uh, vintage that carried out the 9-11 attacks. That has been pretty much dismantled. The Taliban, always a very different entity, from al-Qaeda. Yes, indeed, are now back in power. But indeed, they are a different entity. We could talk about you know, what this means for international terrorism or the fears around that. But it's not straightforward, certainly, that you know, al-Qaeda, as we remember it from 2001, is now back in business because the Taliban are back in Kabul. 
I want to read from uh, the magazine. America has spent $2 trillion in Afghanistan. More than 2,000 American lives have been lost, not to mention countless Afghan ones. And yet, even if Afghans are more prosperous now than when America invaded, Afghanistan is back to square one. The Taliban control more of the country than they did when they lost power. They are better armed, having seized the weapons America showered on the Afghan army. And they have now won the ultimate affirmation, defeating a superpower. I I, I try to wrap my head around the implications of this, especially in that we're weeks away from the, the somber 20th anniversary of September 11th. I mean, from a timing perspective, was was there no other way of kind of diffusing this or punting it down a little further if there were going to be terms of our surrender, kind of dripping it out and, and making sure there are some safeguards in place? I, I think that, um, look, Robin, you know, for 20 years, there have been arguments around Afghanistan between people arguing for one course, whatever, you know, a heavy footprint, lots of American troops on the ground or a very light American footprint, just a counterterrorism mission. Or, or no mission at all. And people on all sides of those arguments have promised a sort of perfect alternative to what's actually happening. You know, we now know, we should, certainly should know that there is no perfect alternative for Afghanistan. It's possible that President Joe Biden will be vindicated in his decision to withdraw from the country. It might look like a very wise one, not too far into the future. But right now, it looks like a bad one. And though there, were, there may be no perfect alternative to what Joe Biden has done, there are things that he could have done with an intent to withdraw from the country that would greatly have reduced the risks of total chaos, bloody chaos and humiliation for America that we're now seeing in Kabul. Indeed, in the Lexington column, I'm, I'm getting your words here. Nor is it clear that staying on would have meant escalating the war in which America has lost 24 soldiers in combat in the past two and a half years. Above all, the catastrophe that Biden was required to answer for this week was not the decades-long failure in Afghanistan or even his decision to draw a line under it. It was his administration's astonishing lack of preparedness for the Taliban's takeover. Aside from an implausible and swiftly debunked claim by Mr. Biden that America had not previously evacuated many vulnerable Afghans because they had not wanted to leave, the president's lengthy self-justification seemed mostly intended to distract attention from that disaster. Uh, I got to say, I, th- I thought these guys were far more prepared and premeditated. I mean, your hand did this. Trump was negotiating openly with the Taliban a year ago. Uh, you know that the September 11th anniversary is coming up, and you, can, you do not want to envision a split-screen scenario with Kabul's kind of lurid fall and the memorial in lower Manhattan. And yet, all of this stuff over the past three weeks happened in slow motion. We saw major cities fall, get sacked by the Taliban in Afghanistan, and it was just an inevitability that Kabul was going to fall. You have this cataclysm at the airport. You have dozens and dozens of Afghani immigrants being uh, flown into Dulles Airport. Indeed, this morning, they're being delivered on the doorsteps of the Beltway in Northern Virginia, looking for safe passage or some sort of resettlement. I don't understand, and you covered DC, how uh, uh, an administration that kind of prides itself on this preparation and competence as opposed to what we just experienced over four years allowed this to happen. Well, you're certainly describing the reality of what's happened, Robin, and clearly there's been a, a terrible failure of planning or of risk evaluation on the part of the administration. I will say, and this is not a defense of the administration, that everybody who's watching this is staggered by the pace at which 
the Afghan state on which so much money and time and indeed blood um, had been invested, people are staggered by the, the pace at which it, it collapsed. So uh, I think, you know, President Biden envisaged that the 9-11 anniversary would be a good moment to be able to declare that he'd ended this war, the war begun by the 9-11 attacks. He liked that symmetry. He liked that symbolism. He just assumed that the collapse of the Afghan state, the victory of, of the Taliban, would take some months or maybe even years to happen. Um, you know, he signaled that he didn't care whether the Taliban won or not. Not really. He didn't really care who controlled Afghanistan. Otherwise, he wouldn't have pulled the plug in the way that he did. Mm. He just thought that uh, the Afghan government would have more time, that the Afghan forces would would hold the Talibs at bay for a little longer. He shouldn't have thought that. We know now already, and we'll know more, no doubt, in due course, that the intelligence risk assessments that he was getting showed that there was clearly a possibility of rapid collapse. But that's just not something, it seems, at a political level, at a decision-making level, the president and his closest advisors considered to be a serious enough possibility to make more contingent planning for what's happened. So they've been they've been caught out and they've been humiliated and I'm afraid they they deserve the unprecedentedly heavy criticism that they're getting right now. Uh, James, perhaps a, a, a short history lesson from you. When, I, I guess at some point around 50 years ago or 40 years ago, did it become the manifest destiny of Afghanistan, uh, this notoriously treacherous terrain and that it's been just difficult for, for millennia to, to, to conquer, for hundreds of years to conquer, that it, that it was its manifest destiny to become a failed state. I remember the Soviets being banned from the 1980 Olympics for their invasion. I remember the Mujahideen in the 1980s. It's kind of a nexus of the Cold War. I remember the Taliban ascendant, I think, in 1996, and they strung up and executed the ruler of Afghanistan. And then barely five years later, it's again in the world's crosshairs because of September 11th. Yeah. So, I mean, you're, you are describing a, a bloody history of, of state uh, failure, Robin. And you're also referring to some of the reasons that that has come to pass. To go back a little bit further, Afghanistan was was always a kind of improbable state, I suppose. Um, ethnically, it's extremely uh, fractured. It doesn't have a majority from any one ethnic group. The, the Pashtuns, the Taliban's own ethnic group, or at least the ethnic group that dominates the Taliban, are not 50% of the population, even though they're considerably bigger than Tajiks, Uzbeks, Hazaras, the other notable minorities in the country. And, you know, there are other countries around the world where there are great coalitions of ethnicities. But in Afghanistan, that really mattered because the country is is also divided ge geographically. It, it's never had um, good infrastructure and a, and a sort of a strong centralized uh, economy. Uh, and through history, you know, uh, going back to the British experiments in pacifying the northwest borders of, of British India, uh, it's been a very unruly part of the world. It was given a degree of cohesion by the former Afghan uh, monarchy. Uh, and then uh, things progressively fell apart in, in, in the aftermath of the monarchy's fall and the takeover of the country by a, a Soviet communist proxy first. And when the, that proxy came under attack, of course, the Soviet army rolled into Afghanistan. And so we then had the full-on Cold War-accented war of the 1980s, 
when there was a Soviet occupation of the country in support of a Soviet proxy communist administration in Kabul. And both the Soviets and their proxy were under fierce attack from many tribal uh, leaders and militia leaders um, who are still around causing mayhem in Afghanistan to this day. And they, those leaders had support from the other superpower, the, the opposing superpower, America, also um, from the Pakistanis, and they were shielded in Pakistan, across the border in Pakistan. The Taliban, uh, to, to sort of fast forward a little bit, arose in the mid-90s to try to pacify the country, to bring an end to the bloody mayhem that that Cold War fueled a war had brought the country to by the early mid-90s when there was a full-blown civil war in the country in the aftermath of the Soviets' withdrawal. And indeed, when the, the Taliban first rolled into Kabul in late 1996, Kabulis threw flowers at their feet. They were so grateful that the, there appeared to be a militia strong enough and concerned enough about security and law and order, as the Talibs were, to put an end to the civil war. So uh, the Taliban villains uh, and reviled as they became for many Afghans uh, were not were not the worst players in those decades of mayhem and terrible, terrible civil war and strife. Is the country sort of fated to be a failed state? Well, it didn't seem like that at times uh, early on in the American experiment with state building after uh, America bombed the Taliban from power in 2001. But very soon, the sort of the strains in that Western project became apparent. And I, I'll just leave you with one of them, because it seems ever more significant in retrospect. And that was really the degree of centralization that um, America and its allies imposed upon this new fledgling Afghan state. They They took a shortcut in sort of state development and wanted everything run from Kabul, uh, with the benefit of the huge budgets, uh, the huge sums of Western aid money that were poured into Kabul. And they thought that they could sort of fast track development and bring the country to heal that way. It just didn't happen. The country is too divided, too fractured ethnically and regionally and in, in other ways. And if there is to be, to get back to your original question, is Afghanistan fated to be a failed state? If there is to be a stable, self-governing functional Afghan state, I do feel it will have to be built more from the provinces up than from the center. Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. You are listening to James Assel. He's Washington bureau chief and Lexington columnist uh, at The Economist. He was previously uh, international security editor. He has filed stories from Afghanistan and uh, some of its neighbors, including Pakistan. The cover is Biden's debacle. Kind of doesn't mince words here on the situation unfolding as the airport still is is a um, chaotic situation and people desperately trying to get out. And uh, I, I don't even know how to characterize it. The Biden administration may be trying from a position of, I don't think you have a position of negotiation strength anymore, saying, will you give us some forbearance? Maybe if we can get more people out, I guess, uh, I guess it behooves the Taliban to behave a little while longer. You would think, I mean, in the process of being cut off from all the multiple millions of dollars of aid money that Afghanistan was receiving, they don't have access to almost all of Afghanistan's reserves. Um, I think the, the former central bank governor suggests that they've got access to less than 1% of the central bank reserves. So 
Um, they're uh, staring sort of down the barrel of, a, of an enormous economic and humanitarian crisis, almost however well they impose security on the country, assuming that they can. So it's, you would think it was it would be in their interest to play nice and to to try to to form some kind of a diplomatic relationship with the Americans, which they would start off by helping the Americans with this evacuation, or at least allowing the American evacuation. But uh, how in control of their own foot soldiers they are, how responsible their leaders in Kabul are, we, we don't know. Clearly, there's some worrying signs on that. Outside the very small perimeter that America and its allies control around Kabul, airport there appears to be mayhem and it does seem that taliban fighters are contributing to that mayhem we have terrible stories of stampedes children being killed in stampedes outside the airport partly as a result of taliban fighters uh, firing volleys of gunfire into the air we hear stories of people being roughed up beaten up westerners as well as afghans people being turned away from checkpoints as they try to make their way with valid passports and visas to the airport so things are going pretty messily and clearly have the potential to go much worse. You know, I'm I'm haunted by this video that anybody can pull up on YouTube from 1980. Is uh, the late Zbigniew Brzezinski was Jimmy Carter's national security advisor addressing the Mujahideen? Your cause is right, and God is on your side. He's addressing the Afghan Mujahideen, which, if I'm not mistaken, a good swath of that went on to evolve into the Taliban, this fearsome force that expelled the Soviets and was this this theater of humiliation. Uh, in the Cold War for the USSR in the 1980s. Have we armed, effectively, the Mujahideen and the Taliban twice? I think in leaving now with with all of the uh, the arms and jeeps and tanks and rocket-propelled grenade launchers and everything else in our wake? Uh, yes, you have, Robin. I, I'm, I'm struck by the uh, very impressive rifle drills that all of the Taliban soldiers, fighters, I'm seeing on TV are, are displaying. Back in 1996, uh, the Taliban militiamen looked like sort of, you know, irregular militiamen around the world with a sort of rifle slung over their shoulder. Now they look very smart with their kind of trigger finger extended and off the trigger and the rifle pointing to, to five o'clock. That, that's, that's a, a rifle drill that they have learned directly or indirectly from the US trainers, the US and other NATO trainers that have been training the Afghan army over the last 20 years. It's it's a remarkable thing to see. It's also remarkable to see how the Taliban sort of are aspiring to be American style soldiers. That's the way they, they've, they've taken up the, the uniforms and the kits that the Americans have left behind with such alacrity, as you describe. I want to read again from the uh, Lexing, uh, you know, from the leaders column, the fiasco in Afghanistan is a grave blow to America's standing. In that there's one aspect that gets to kind of the manufactured urgency of getting out of Afghanistan, which is what I don't quite understand. Mr. Biden did not have to stick to uh, an agreement that he inherited from Donald Trump. In fact, he didn't entirely refusing to keep to the original timetable. The Taliban were clearly not holding up their end of the bargain, pressing their advantage on the battlefield instead of negotiating in good faith with the Afghan government. That could have been grounds to halt or reverse the American withdrawal. There was little political pressure within America to bring the war to a speedy conclusion. Yet Mr. Biden was working to an arbitrary and flippant deadline of his own, seeking to end the war by the 20th anniversary of 9-11. Although the speed of the Afghan government's implosion surprised most observers, including this newspaper, America's soldiers and politicians were among the most naively optimistic. 
insisting that a total collapse was a vanishingly remote prospect. I just want to get to the urgency of this. I mean, in for a penny, in for a pound, in for $2 trillion, right? In for a pound, right? This was, um, we had the troops there. We had the leverage. What was the advantage in declaring the time that we're going to get out? If anything, that just gives the Taliban, I think, free reign to sack the various cities and make Kabul an inevitability. So it goes back to President Biden's own strong, long-held view that military entanglements of this kind, as Afghanistan had turned out to be, as Iraq was for some time, as Syria might have been if the Obama administration had sent military forces there, as Libya turned out to be, albeit that there were, there were very few Western troops on the ground there. Biden believes that these entanglements are not in America's interest. He thinks that they are immediately liable to mission creep. He doesn't trust the top brass in the Pentagon not to always demand more and more resources for a, a future military solution, which is which is never realistic. He thinks you've got to you've got to be very skeptical of the advice you get from the Department of Defense and cut your losses and move on to uh, the more successful, more focused foreign policy that it seems he envisages. So, again, you know, a point I made earlier: Biden didn't really care whether the Taliban controlled Afghanistan or not. He signaled that. He, he signaled that it was not in America's interest to worry any more about that. He felt that the counterterrorism part of the American mission had been served or could still be served um, with Americans outside the country. And with that position, Biden has been proved wrong on the alacrity uh, with which the Taliban took over the country in the wake of the American withdrawal and the problems that this has now presented to his administration on the evacuation in particular. That's what he was wrong on in his own terms, not the withdrawal per se. I want to quote from your column, the Lexington column. In fact, around 70,000 Afghan soldiers and policemen have died fighting the Taliban. The country's forces folded only after Mr. Trump cut a deal with their enemies that then Mr. Biden cut their air and logistical support. And the Democratic president was not always so skeptical of the effort to build an Afghan state. He was initially supportive of it. I, I, I don't know if I'm making so much sense, but I'm trying to get at the urgency of pegging it to this date. I know I, know I keep hitting you on it. Was there a pressing uh, public opinion uh, pressure for him to do this? Where does this even rank Afghanistan? If I were to go back and look at Afghanistan coverage on the nightly news over the past two, three years, it was definitely you know fifth fiddle to COVID and everything else that was going on. Yeah, no, I, I think it was it was twentieth fiddle to uh, any number of stories of perhaps less importance that, than COVID. The, this was not anywhere near the top of the news agenda. Biden was under very little political pressure. It's been written a lot, mostly outside America, in the last few days that Biden did this for political reasons. Well, you know, to give him his due, to give the devil his due on this issue, I don't think. Biden was doing this for narrow political reasons because there just there are just no votes in it. There are no votes in staying or leaving Afghanistan. It's been a a, a small American mission in relative terms for many years, and American voters, little touched by the issue, just weren't interested in it. So Biden was not under great pressure to withdraw from Afghanistan. He wanted to withdraw from Afghanistan because he uh, was not a fan of the Afghan mission, to put it to put it mildly. And he, he saw the 9-11 anniversary, the 20th anniversary coming up as an appropriate milestone 
to reach for, to to say that you know this was the moment that he that he ended the wars. To I guess even to try to get to get a bit more popularity for his withdrawal, uh, by explaining to to American people that 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 whole era of post nine eleven foreign policy was now over. He he didn't sign up to it. He didn't believe in these interventions. That's what he had in mind. To the extent that there was urgency around the American withdrawal, it was entirely imposed by the president himself, not by politics, not by circumstance, but by his own view of the matter. That's, as we, we're clearly discussing, turned out to be a major miscalculation, whatever you think of the rights and wrongs of an, of an American withdrawal from Afghanistan. Full disclosure, please stay with us. This show podcast to NPR One, Spotify, and Apple Podcasts at linkfulldradio.com. Please subscribe, rate us, and recommend the show to friends and family. If you're just joining us, we are talking to James Astill. He is Washington Bureau Chief and Lexington columnist at The Economist magazine. The cover story is Biden's debacle, uh, alas, what it means for Afghanistan and America. I have to ask you, is there is there anything to be gleaned, James, in the lesson of, of uh, maybe pulling out prematurely from Iraq and the vacuum that it left? And, you know, we, we weren't talking about ISIS, I think, before 2014, and then it completely eclipsed Al-Qaeda. Al-Qaeda wasn't an issue in Iraq when we took out, when the United States took out Iraq, but then ISIS becomes the primary terrorist concern in that vacuum. Indeed, this is a land that has shown itself amenable to kind of foreign terrorist squatting, as it did with Al-Qaeda. Who's to say it won't happen again? Well, you've, you've answered your own very good question, Robin. America pulled out of Iraq, again, because of a self-imposed sort of presidential deadline uh, imposed by Barack Obama, um, the American ally in Iraq turned out to be uh, inadequate to the task of imposing security on the country. We saw the rise of, of ISIS in Syria. It spread into, into Iraq. The takeover of a huge part of Iraq, even to the extent of threatening Baghdad, the capital. And so America was forced to intervene again to shore up its allies in Iraq. The comparison is absolutely apposite here. It's just that there is no longer even, uh, you know, uh, the semblance of an American ally in Afghanistan. The Taliban are now in control of even more of Afghanistan than they were in control of back in 2001 before the Americans started bombing them. So, I mean, for the Americans to be forced to think about intervening again in Afghanistan against the Taliban, I think you would have to see some equivalent terrorist threat or indeed, God forbid, terrorist attack equivalent to 9-11. Whether that's appropriate, an appropriate fear, that is, is, you know, we, we don't know what the risk is. The counterterrorism folks tell us that, that uh, there have been such huge developments in drone technology, in uh, signal intelligence, and indeed in the politics of the Taliban and the disincentive that they should feel to harboring international terrorists in view of what happened to them last time they did that. All of that might suggest that there's a, there is a much lesser risk of history repeating itself and are getting another 9-11 than some people fear. But it's clearly, nonetheless, a valid fear. What about the state-sponsored interest in kind of dominating Afghanistan? I'm thinking about China's Belt and Road Initiative, which you know has aromas of, of the, uh, the fabled Silk Road, this massive massive uh, multinational infrastructure project. I think the inception was in 2013. The Chinese government wants to invest in upward of 70 countries and international organizations. And I look at the map and 
Afghanistan, for all of its mountainous and treacherous terrain, is is pretty plump. Yeah, um, it's it's a, the the meeting point of empires, as, as has often been described. Extraordinarily strategic location. Well, look, Robin, there's been an awful lot of chatter over the years and now decades of immense Chinese investment in. Uh, Afghanistan and the degree to which that could be a, an alternative to or a reinforcement of what the West were trying to do in Afghanistan. And we really haven't seen anything much of that investment over the years. You know, a, a bit of Chinese interest and investment in the mining sector, but that mining sector is completely nascent. Uh, at least the formal mining industry is almost non-existent in Afghanistan. And that was the case when there was a somewhat reliable partner in Kabul, I think it, even if China is playing the Taliban and the Taliban's entry into Kabul very differently from America, I don't think we should expect to see a huge Chinese investment now in Afghanistan that was not forthcoming before the Taliban took over the place again. What of this? Uh, what of what of the ink being spilled on this potential trillion dollars of rare earths? I mean, lithium. Uh, and the electrified automobile and and the international arms race for battery power is that speculative if i'm thinking of old old line things such as natural gas pipelines and there are already investments in southern pakistan for china is this really uh, you know let's take the pax talibana entertain that idea that there is an enlightened self interest from this new regime in afghanistan and they would welcome the no questions asked bridges and tunnels and investments and machinery that china could bring Robin, we don't know how this Taliban regime is going to compare to the, the old Taliban regime. Perhaps it's possible that they'll be sufficiently responsible uh, and efficient uh, and promising of a sort of long-term stable Afghanistan for China or other um, countries and investors to put huge amounts of money into uh, a mining other natural, otherwise a natural resource sector in Afghanistan, but it's really too early to predict that right now. You know, the the Taliban were not good at governing the country last time around. the The country was not stable last time around. Its economy was shot to pieces. The civil war carried on in uh, the Panjshir Valley, especially where there was a sort of tragic holdout to the Talibs and the harboring of international terrorists of Al Qaeda by the Taliban were sort of emblematic of the prior status that they had internationally. This is the Taliban that we know, and we don't know a different Taliban yet. And I suspect strongly that whatever the Chinese say about their hopes of having good working relations with the Taliban, we won't see significant investment in a long-term sector like the mining industry uh, until we're surprised on the upside to a rather remarkable degree about the the ability of the Taliban to run the country and hold it together um, for for some for some considerable time. James, try to get me into the mind of the Taliban, the new and improved, you know, the softer, the softer Taliban of the 2021 vintage and not the 2000, 2001 vintage. I mean, clearly uh, is self-interested, wants to be in power there, raced to take back the cities and the countries, uh, didn't stand on ceremony in any way. Suppose it wants to survive and last into the future. It's already signaled that it's going to prioritize women's rights and uh, uh, people aren't necessarily going to lose their job who are in concert, working in concert with uh, U.S. troops. Is the, I, mean, I don't want to sound so naive, but 
Should there be something to that to the extent that you want to have a chance at international monetary inflows and investment? And in the end, what are you inheriting if there's nothing beneath it? If I understand the the, the question rightly, Robin, I, if if the Taliban, you know, they're not democratic, they're they're not liberal. Um, their human rights record is uh, was abysmal during the fighting of this war. They they slaughtered people. They showed no regard for civilian lives. If they nonetheless are a great improvement on the Taliban of yesteryear, if they let women take part in uh, the economy and public life, if if they have a vision of of Afghanistan which is much closer to what I don't know some of the softer Islamists in Pakistan or in or in Turkey, then then the West should rush, should fall over themselves to support that Taliban project and and uh, continue aid flows to them, and certainly not consider the sort of sanctions that some Western politicians are talking about right now. I, I would just say that there is really not much reason to hope for that Taliban. And although, as you suggest, we've heard some sort of encouraging, sort of conciliatory noises from some Taliban spokesmen, we, we've also heard some opposing messages and have uh, heard reports of women in Herat, uh, where 60% of the university population was female, being told that they can't go to university anymore, government offices being emptied of women workers. And, and as the women are being sent home, they're being told to, to send their male relatives back to fill their jobs. This is the Taliban of yesteryear. So the sort of new and improved and softer Taliban is is still very much a notional thing rather than something that I think we can point to yet. Uh, James Astle, The Economist, in the few minutes we have left with you, I'd love to focus on uh, the United States' standing. I mean, tons of stuff written about the United States since September 11th. Of course, President George W. Bush comes into office in 2001, really openly skeptical of nation building. September 11th happens. Iraq we take on, which was disastrous in many ways, and we pulled out too soon. And you see this broad, uh, amorphous entity and, and ISIS suddenly take over everything. I'm, I, I hear a lot being written this week about the, the unenforced red line in Syria with chemical weapons under Barack Obama and Biden's pullout kind of being as sounding two death blows to American credibility for, I think, at, at the very least, multilateralism for other countries being able to depend on us. So, Robin, this is this is a this is a bad blow for America's reputation. Uh, it's it's a disaster. The Europeans who feel that they were, you know, partners who, in Afghanistan who 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 sacrificed a great deal, and so not just the Europeans, but Canada too, the NATO members primarily sacrificed huge amounts of their own blood and treasure in Afghanistan. Were signed on to the uh, American-led effort to stabilize Afghanistan in the long term. And now the Americans have just pulled the plug on them, making not just America's, but other NATO members' sacrifices in Afghanistan worthless. So there is a, a great deal of unhappiness amongst America's traditional allies, those allies that President Biden swore to, to big up and refresh and re- replenish in American diplomacy when he, when he took office. Nonetheless, you know, the history of American foreign policy in recent decades is of terrible failures. Um, and Vietnam uh, is the classic example, you know, a sin of commission. There have also been sins of omission, the failure of of America to respond, to try to quash the, the Rwandan genocide in the mid-90s, for example, also. 
these failures were all marked by terrible chest beating and hair tearing in Washington, D.C., and certainly consternation amongst American allies. But America does have great powers of reinvention and, and, and acting when the politics line up behind a, a more imaginative, confident, forceful American foreign policy once again. And in America's victory in the Cold War, ascension to, to, to be the one global superpower, not long, what, 15 years after the debacle in Vietnam, these sort of examples show us that, you know, that it's never darker than shortly before the dawn. And there can be, a, no doubt, a, a sort of dawn of American foreign policy again. There are reasons to think that, that history is um, not going to just repeat itself. The rise of China makes a big difference to America's ability to act in the world. Perhaps more importantly, the dysfunction in American politics makes it very hard to rally the country behind a foreign policy, just as George W. Bush was able to rally the country after 2001. So there are things to worry about, but I wouldn't rule out America's ability to come back from this by any means. And I have to ask you in closing, uh, let's throw a wild card in here. Iran. Iran is front and center in negotiations back with the United States to restore some sort of uh, commercial trade-off sanctions relief for uh, nuclear disarmament. They must not be thrilled with having the Taliban back on their immediate eastern border. Well, I think as for for China uh, and Pakistan too, you know, it's it's a bit of a mixed picture. The Iranians were were very hostile to the Taliban uh, historically, as you will know, Robin, but they've been sort of making nice with them for some time. They're now balancing a poor pariah state on their eastern border and the prospect of a huge inflow of refugees once again from Afghanistan into Iran. They're balancing that clear disaster and economic drain and security worry for Iran with the bloodying of America's nose and reputation in Afghanistan, which is something cheering to the Iranians. So they probably shouldn't be cheered. They should worry about the longer term impact of of this on their own country. But I think there's some rejoicing nonetheless in Tehran in America's humiliation and fall. James Astill, Washington Bureau Chief and Lexington columnist with The Economist. I'm always grateful to have you on, sir. Great pleasure, Robin. Full disclosure, please stay with us. Joining me is Michael Ariki. He's a safety and security officer who's had experience in Iraq, Afghanistan, and Libya during the years 2004 to 2012. He was senior security asset for several U.S. government reconstruction contractors, plus 40 years of security and law enforcement experience. How are you, sir? Quite well. And yourself? Uh, I'm thinking of you this week with all of your experience in the Middle East, and we've had conversations in the past about nation building and the ability for for U.S. started projects to stick. What are you thinking about Afghanistan? What are you hearing from contractors and fellow security officials who are evacuating? Well, it's quite troubling. I mean, you know, there's, if I must be very, very direct, it's Hobson's choice. Shall we say or shall we go? I mean, we try to reconstruct the country or, or construct the country, actually, and it was, it was a very difficult task. Sure. Well, given given the resources and, and the manpower and the relative desire of the Afghanis, it's a tribal culture. I mean, they they did not understand a number of things we were trying to do. And I have to find no fault with them. Uh, take me back to when uh, you first went there in Afghanistan, what your first impressions were. Was that back in 2004? 
No, that was 2009. I was there in 2009, 2012. It's uh, <laughs> a beautiful country. The, the people are quite lovely. Uh, but it, it's, you know, it devolved. Afghanistan in the 60s and 70s before the Soviets came in was moving toward a westernized culture. If that's a good thing or a bad thing, you know, I, I can't comment, but they certainly were trying to westernize with their education, their mores, their dress, their appreciation of the other world. Now, you have to understand this was localized hmm. in the bigger cities, in Mazar Sharif, in Kabul, in uh, Jalalabad, and Herat, the bigger cities. The outliers stayed quite tribal. And, you know, the literacy rate in Afghanistan now is, is very poor. The only, hmm. according to multiple organizations, the only other country in the world that has less literacy in South Sudan. Wow. So how would you have viewed the United States 20 years ago when you're put into this situation? You have to take out Al-Qaeda. Al-Qaeda is being hosted by the Taliban. There's a strange symmetry to it that the, the very regime that hosted the terrorists who attacked the United States on September 11th is resurgent and gets to inherit the country on the 20th anniversary of the September 11th attack. Well, the Taliban did not take out the United States. Al-Qaeda did, who they gave safe harbor to. Yes. So, and, and there's a concept in Afghan society called Melmasti. And there's a similar concept in the Arab world um, that you will, someone comes to you in need of support, you can't refuse them. So, you know, the United States had no idea of the Afghan culture. Because we, we cut tail and ran after the Soviets left. So we didn't have a lot of assets on the ground. We didn't have a lot of uh, direct intel of the country. You know, it reminds me of that quote, Mike, in, in uh, Rambo, when Musa is talking to Rambo. Let me quote. He goes, this is Afghanistan. Alexander the Great tried to conquer this country, then Genghis Khan, then the British, now Russia. This was back in 1988. But Afghan people fight hard. They never be defeated. Ancient enemy make prayer about these people. You wish to hear? Rambo says, um, hum. Uh, very good, it says. May God deliver us from the venom of the cobra, teeth of the tiger, and the vengeance of the Afghan. <laughs> uh, that's one thing we discussed with uh, James Astle of The Economist and what was what what led to this this country devolving, as you said, and becoming a failed state and becoming ungovernable and why the United States was the latest in several, a string of several different external players who came in and thought that they could rebuild something with all of these billions and billions, maybe upward of a trillion dollars spent on it. Well, well, the British tried three times. So, you know, you give them points for persistence, but not effectiveness. We fail to understand the people. The, uh, the mm -hmm. Afghanis are resilient people. I shudder to think what's going to happen moving forward. What are you hearing from fellow contractors out there, people who've you've you've interfaced with in the past people who are trying to get out at this very moment well most of them have been able to uh get out but uh you know moving forward we have a lot of deep ties with the afghanis on a personal level i was very fortunate i i spent most of my time living in wazir akbar khan i wasn't on the basis so i had the opportunity on a daily basis to interface with the afghanis and you know our hearts are breaking for them and their families Fortunately, most of, most of my guys 
we were able to get the special immigrant visas years ago. So they're living, you know, all over dispersed in the United States. But there's still a lot of friends and family who are trying desperately to get out. I get correspondence every day from Afghanis who I knew maybe not very well and uh, who I knew well um, that, like, can, what can you do? Do something. Help us get out. It's, it's quite desperate. Now, how monolithic is the Taliban versus its kind of year 2000, 2001 vintage? I mean, Mullah Omar, after all, was on the U.S.'s most wanted list in the wake of September 11. But here you have a, a regime there that purports to say, I guess it's nominally okay with women in government roles, women going to schools. Do you do you trust it? Do you think that it'll have some some element of enlightened self-interest in mind in terms of contractors and bridges and roads and all the other things that need to be done to to not be a failed state? <laughs> I wouldn't trust the Taliban as far as you can um, kick anything. They're an unreliable ally. They're Unfortunately, we're in negotiations with them because we have no choice. We have no choice. Uh, Taliban 2.0 is essentially Taliban 1.0. Um, it's in their best interest to let us all go, to get all the, what they would refer to as infidels, out of the country uh, because, you know, that was their term. Their, their term, they dictated the terms all foreign armies, all foreign people out of Afghanistan. So if they do anything to interrupt, interrupt that, that's against their self-interest. Let us all go and then do what you're going to do, which is not a very attractive uh, alternative. Michael Rigi, close us out. Uh, if you're brought in by a, a, a multinational, say, in Pakistan or in China, or uh, you, know, you can't deal with Iran necessarily, but Afghanistan shares borders with multiple countries. It's a lot of treacherous terrain. Kind of game this out. Uh, what is the what is the security plan going forward if you have to deal with geostrategic issues regionally? It's 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 a free fall. Um, China wants to come in because of the Belt and Road Initiative, and they want to build through Afghanistan. The one thing the Chinese are going to suffer under is that they don't bring in local workers; they bring in their own people, the Chinese. Mm. And the Afghans are very, very protective. You know, if you're spreading money around their area, regardless of location in the country, it better be to other Afghanis, not to your own indigenous people. Michael Rigi, I really appreciate it. Uh, formerly Chief Safety and Security Officer at Virginia Commonwealth University, Michael operated in Iraq, Afghanistan, and Libya between 2004 and 2012 as senior security asset for several government reconstruction contractors. You are always welcome to come back on. My pleasure, Robin. Full disclosure, special thanks to Claire Morgan at Notterly. We podcast to NPR One, Spotify, and Apple. You can follow link fulldradio.com. Please subscribe, rate us, and recommend the show to others. I'm Robin Farzad, back with you next week.